I was standing by my window on one cold and cloudy day when I saw that her scum rolling or to carry my mother away. With a circle Be unbroken By and by, Lord By and by Welcome to the Unbroken Circle A very special Matthew event I'm Lucas Brown In this four-part series My guests and I will be discussing Discworld the epic comic fantasy series by the late Sir Terry Pratchett. Over the course of four episodes, we will discuss the characters and themes that roam across all 41 novels, plus myriad diaries, maps, almanacs, compendiums, companions, art books, cookbooks, and honest-to-God science texts. In this episode, co-host of Gem Jammer and I Will Fight You, Annie Creighton, is here to talk about witches specifically Granny Weatherwax and Tiffany Aching. Along the way, we discuss being there for the beginnings and the end of things, the importance of old men's toenails, and how good does not need to be nice. And because it's the math of you, we'll finish the show with a signature cocktail that'll be sure to put some chest in your chest. We join this conversation already in progress. So for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? (laughs) Okay, I am Annie Creighton. I am on the internet. I am largely a podcaster slash general shit talker on Twitter. Until recently, I was doing an episode by episode recap of Gem and the Holograms called The Gem Jam with Mac Weaver and Kit Walker. We wrapped that up. We finally ran out of gem to talk about. And we are now primarily (laughs) doing Gem Jammer, which is, yes, a pun, which is a spell jammer actual play D&D 5e podcast, which basically means we sit around with the three of us plus Kit's mom, who's like 65, and play Dungeons and Dragons, but in space where there are space hippos. Yeah. Listeners... Here's the thing. I don't go very well with actual play podcasts. There's pretty much just like the Adventure Zone and Gem Jammer. So if that goes as a ringing endorsement, please take it as such. Gem Jammer is fantastic. And also, what are you on, episode six or seven? Yeah, we went like accidental two-month hiatus because we had a whole bunch of life stuff come up, plus the original recording of our most recent arc had to be completely scrapped. But we just had episode six, and then episode seven, I think, is going to be the part two of that. And then we'll have more stuff coming up soon. We just had our first guest, who is a spectacular person. It's Rio, right? Yeah, Rio, who did the character designs for our cover art. The really amazing character designs. Yeah, they are spectacular. They actually live down in Tacoma, and we got together for dinner when Kit was in town recently, and they are super strong and could pick me up, and that was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and listeners, here's something that's very, like, first off, yes, go and listen to Jeb Jammer. It's early enough you can get the entirety of the first run done in maybe a week. So I definitely recommend it. But here's the thing. If you've been on, like me, a longtime listener of the Jem Jam, and think, oh, well, you know, Max, the one who doesn't talk as much <laughs> as Annie and Kit, get ready for double barrel, full bore Mac to the face. Because Mac plays Cacophony, who is basically Riot from Jim as an elf, but also extremely Mac. And if you've listened to the Mac Weaver episode of this show, that is all I need to tell you because it's amazing. In one of the most recent episodes, there was an extended bit where all of you wake up and go to sort of get out of into the city. And Mac goes, wait, I haven't described my outfit. And what follows, just like I was having lunch in a shopping center and was just sort of cackling into my fork. 
and I thought it was over, and then, oh, and my heels. <laughs> and you actually hear Kit, the DM, go, oh, god damn it. Like, here's the thing about Mac is that Mac role plays, like, for funsies for, like, so many hours a week. She is currently in three different games. I think they're all D&D currently, but she really loves World of Darkness and, like, White Wolf games. Werewolf in particular. And she actually might be part of a fourth game that is running on the reg. And, like, she has done DMing, STing for funsies for years so this is her 100% within her element and it is a lot <laughs> it's very a lot yeah and it's great yeah oh man if, if you do want to hear us talk about things that aren't Dungeons and Dragons and Spelljammer and Hippos I don't know why you would but we do have another podcast that I forgot to mention that is I Will Fight You which is like three English majors and we talk about the media that we hate and also love it's surprisingly joyful. It's very good. And this is something I was talking to Jake Mason and Kit about online recently. It's that while you will occasionally savage something, and I put the proper emphasis on that, this thing is savaged when you are done with it. <laughs> it is bloodied two or more hits and it may die. But there's always a joy. It's never just, hey, look at this bad thing. It's here is this bad thing. We kind of love it. And that's a very important distinction. For example, when you recently spoke to Jake about the Mario Brothers movie and how gloriously awful that movie is. It is. It is. It is so good. It is so bad. <laughs> I don't understand how it got made. And I love it. It's so bad. I have a fan theory that the Yoshi from that movie is actually Ripter from Killer Instinct. <laughs> and then later in Death Battle had to fight the original Yoshi and died very badly while crushing one of the host's car. That is one <laughs> hell of a headcanon. Oh, yeah, it happens. <laughs> All right, so let's get down to the brass tacks. You see, a few weeks ago on Twitter, as I occasionally do, I tweeted that I was shocked that no one had come on to this particular show to talk about formative media and have not mentioned a particular formative media. Because when I get guests on the show, I always ask them, like, what do you want to talk about? And sometimes I get a general comment, sometimes I get very specific comments. But I'm surprised, really, that no one has ever mentioned Discworld, the extremely long-running series by the incredibly missed late Terry Pratchett. Sir Terry Pratchett, I should say. So what I did is I went on Twitter and I lamented this fact. And I said, I, I can't believe it that this thing that is so important to me, no one has ever mentioned it. And of course, true to the internet's way, I then had an onslaught of responses of people who then came back and went, yes, absolutely, I desperately want to talk about this thing. And first among them was one, Annie Creighton. <laughs> to be fair, I did have a bit of a leg up as you had started reading The Shepherd's Crown, which I had coincidentally yep. just finished like the week prior. Yeah, The Shepherd's Crown, which, by the way, listeners, if you don't know, was Terry Pratchett's final book that he completed before tragically succumbing to Alzheimer's and dying, which still remains one of the two celebrity deaths at which, upon finding them, I openly wept because he was an amazing man and he is incredibly missed. And he will be remembered as long as we say his name. And his name was Terry Pratchett. So, Annie. Lucas. How did you first find Terry Pratchett's books? Hmm. You know, thinking back, it's kind of hard to figure out. I want to say that when I was preteen and onwards, I became this outrageously voracious reader of fantasy and some science fiction, but mostly fantasy. So a lot of times I was just reading whatever the hell I could find. For a long time, that attention was eaten up by Dragonlance, which is the most pop fantasy. I also have lots of opinions about draconians now, because of course I would. Look at me. After our previous conversation, I have taken great joy whenever I'm in a used bookstore to find the most ridiculous fantasy book with the most ridiculous cover and sending you a picture of both the front and back to get your read on it. Yes. And the worst part is there's a lot of those that I actually have read at one time or another. Especially if it had, like, a horse or a dragon or a horse dragon on the front. What can I say? I have a niche. <laughs> so along that way, I think I heard somewhere that Terry Pratchett was, like, the fantasy version of Douglas Adams as he was for science fiction. And I was like, I want to get me some of that shit. So... <laughs> What I do is I start at the place that seems like it should be the place you should start, but turns out it's actually not the place you should start because of how long running oh, the God, series you is. 
You started at the color of magic, didn't you? I started with the color of magic. Ah, jeez. Actually, thinking about it, I think I made, like, a fan comic of the beginning of The Light Fantastic oh. in, like, middle school because that image of Two Flower and Rincewind sitting below the tree wondering why they're here and how they got here was so just concrete in my head. That's perfect. And, like... It took me a while to figure out exactly where I wanted to go with Discworld because if any listeners haven't read any Discworld books, they're a whole series that's broken up into several sort of subgenres almost featuring sets of characters. So the wizards didn't quite draw me in. I really loved the death novels, but there aren't a whole lot of those. Like Hogfather, especially the denouement and Hogfather just blew my fucking mind as a high schooler. Because it's great. Yeah, and informed a lot of my personal philosophies. You know, I tried out Equal Rights, which is actually the first Granny Weatherwax book, the first witch book, but is so distinctly different because it was like the third book that he ever wrote in Discworld, so none of the world's kinks have been worked out yet, especially not how wizard and witch magic works. Yeah. But like, at some point, I started reading them because I couldn't discern an order, because he rotates between casts of characters. I just picked one up at random, and it was Lords and Ladies. Oh, good one. Yeah, and then that hooked me on Witches, and then I had to go back and read, in chronological order, all of the other witch books to get back to Lords and Ladies to figure out what the hell everybody was talking about with the witches returning from somewhere. Where the hell did they go? I don't know. Yeah, and the thing is, Weird Sisters is, in my mind the first real witches book mm. for all equal rights does contain granny weatherwax and you get ask and how she comes back later but weird sisters cemented it for me and it was actually the first witches book that i read and which helped because i have a massive love of macbeth and so oh, yeah. what you get is you get this massive subversion of macbeth of the witches characters and not only that but it's also metafiction because it's about someone putting on a play of Macbeth and them being accidentally in the role of the witches and how the Duke that would be Macbeth is horrible. And it's him who has the guilt washing the spot off his hands, eventually using steel wool in one of the grosser parts of the series. And it's it's great. Like, it's really good. It's, it's like Hamlet Macbeth, like all smushed into one because it's about stories and Really, all the witch books are, but that one in particular is about, like, Shakespeare stories. Yeah, I mean, you even have, um, it, is it Will? I never know how to say his names out loud. Who's the, the dwarf playwright? Oh, I, I assume. I don't know. I don't remember. He has a brain that is specifically attuned to inspiration particles coming back and forth in time as they do. And they hit him and he wears a metal helmet to deflect them at the best of time <laughs> so he can actually get shit done. Because, hey, this is Terry Pratchett. That's how Terry Pratchett works. But occasionally he'll do things like he handed in his script and it was written on his bed sheets and parts of the masonry of his walls <laughs> because he started writing it in his sleep. And then he ran out of paper. And at one point he writes the Marx Brothers. But he doesn't <laughs> understand them because he is a medieval dwarf. And so he's like... Business with a bladder on a stick. I don't know. <laughs> God, that reminds me so much of soul music with like all of the bits of like modern genre music just sort of finding its way into small bits of Discworld. Like the dwarfs that like start coming up with hip hop. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, the, even the fact that there's a dwarf band and the dwarf band is referred to as, what's your name? Well, we're dwarfs. It's like, well, you can't just be that. We're certainly dwarfs. Which, you know, <laughs> if you flip it is... They might be giants. <laughs> or if, if you if you take Imp, who's the main character, and his name means Bud of the Holly, a.k.a. Buddy Holly, oh God, Terry Pratchett, really? you bastard. Yes. Son of yes. a bitch. <laughs> That's the thing. There are puns like that that will hit you literally years later. Like, I didn't watch Lawrence of Arabia until about four years ago, and then I reread Jingo, and I went, oh, you motherfucker. <laughs> the really interesting thing about Terry Pratchett he was able to take these elements of real life and real culture and distill them in this fantasy world in a way that was compelling it wasn't just like this is the Lawrence of Arabia book yeah very much so and even though Weird Sisters is the Macbeth book which is also kind of the Hamlet book what you really get what you truly get is the iron core of these three characters you know the maiden and the mother and the other one <laughs> a.k.a. Magrat, Naniog, and Granny Weatherwax, in a way that you don't get with equal rights. 
the thing about equal rights is that it's almost considered like you almost have to like quasi canonically headcanon lots of it away because like first off it's Granny Weatherwax by herself which is something that we don't see again until the Tiffany Aching books which are almost sort of a response to the ideas and the things that he wanted to do with this original concept of equal rights and then turn it into its own thing but like it's about a coven it's about a trio of witches and it's also just about like I'm getting off on a bit of a tangent but like the battle between Mustrum Ridcully, I think it is and Granny Weatherwax at the end of Equal Rights is like this whole thing where they're all turning into animals and it's very like Sword in the Stone Merlin and Mad Madam Mim it's a wizard fight and then like I think later on in other sources they're like you know what that's just what people said and what they thought they saw um we don't have to pretend that was real because that's not actually how witches work now no and specifically not how witches magic works Mm mm-hmm which is, it doesn't work if you can help it. Exactly, because magic's a problem, mm-hmm. and there are still bits of the disc world that tick and try to eat you because of the mage wars. And this idea that, oh yeah, the best thing you should do is probably not use magic, because, for example, you could magic yourself a sandwich, but the amount of energy and power needed to create that thing in that very specific way and the weeks of planning it's like just make a fucking sandwich guy it's quicker or say for instance if you wanted to turn someone into a toad well conservation of mass doesn't work like that so the rest of the person has to go somewhere yeah it's much easier for example to use the granny weatherwax message which is just convince someone that they're a toad Mm -hmm. and how we still can't get mr hopkins out of the pond I definitely decided at some point that the Granny Weatherwax headology method, especially like in the way that it has echoes in Susan Stohelet's mannerisms of like raising a child is definitely how I want to eventually deal with like there's a monster under my bed when my future kids do that. Oh, hell yeah. It's that what have you given this child? I've given him a sword. Well, isn't that dangerous? Well, it's a sword. It's supposed to be dangerous. Well, he could cut himself. That would be a very sharp lesson then, wouldn't it? It's the... He would certainly learn. I think the philosophy of headology as described, which is something that Granny Weatherwax employs more than anything else, is if a man is running to you telling him that there's a there's a monster after him or something, you don't try to convince him that there's no monster. You give him a stick and a chair to stand on. <laughs> it gets to the root of it when it comes to... Granny Weatherwax specifically, in a way that would be villainous in other less capable writers' hands, Granny Weatherwax's view of the world and the I can't be having with that is this driving force of the series, which then, of course, like you mentioned, the Tiffany Aching books kind of crystallizes into this, it's not right, we have to fix this, there will be a reckoning. There will be a reckoning. Ugh. So good. I think the thing that really draws me the most about the witch books is that at their core, they are about stories. I think this is something that pops up in the first one. If we're discounting equal rights, it's something that pops up in the first one, but it's also something that pops up in shoot, what's the sequel? Witches Abroad. Yeah, it's it's another thing that pops up in Witches Abroad in particular, which deals with fairy tales. But witch books at their core are about stories and what those stories are and what those stories mean and what they do and what they need and what they want and what we do with them. And that sort of deconstruction and awareness of how narratives function is something that has always been very powerful to me. Like, a lot of my personal philosophies revolve around, like, narrative structure, which is something that's always fascinated me in terms of, like, how we view things, how we make stories out of them, and how we want things to go, how we intrinsically sense narrative structure. Yeah, and Discworld even has this as a concept. It has narrativium. Mm -hmm. And the more a story is told, the deeper the grooves of that ball running along the soft clay get. And so the harder to resist those stories are. It's simply making that whole philosophy much more concrete in this setting. When you send a youngest brother off to fight a monster that has claimed the lives of his two older brothers, you know what's going to happen. But then, of course, the witches' books are also deeply about subverting those story narratives and hitting the bedrock of reality. Yeah, it's very much about, like, these are how these stories function, but should they? And why do we let them? And what do we do if that's not how the story should go? And tell you what, if it's hitting Granny Weatherwax, then no, it don't. No. It don't very much. 
Okay, real talk. Mass Effect is a video game series that I am inordinately fond of. It is one of my favorite stories, she says, sitting next to a desk with three different Garrus Vicarians on it and one from the Knight of Forza. <laughs> but like my shepherd, when I was looking for a good name for a commander, for a woman who's going to save the galaxy, my shepherd's first name is Esme. Of course it is. Yeah. Stands to reason. It just seemed right. Like we're talking a lot about Granny Weatherax, and that's because she has become the core of those books. And it is an iron core. <laughs> and kind of the core of Discworld, too. Like, yeah. she's the character that Terry kept returning to over and over again. And similar to the Watch series, which were meant to be about Corporal Carrot, very quickly became about Commander Vimes. Absolutely. And in the same way, those are are considered to be the two pillars of Discworld, are Vimes and Granny Weatherwax. For good reason, because they are exceptionally well-drawn and excellent characters. And what's interesting is that neither of them are particularly very interested in all of the more fantastical elements that are in Discworld. They're not really wizards. They're not gods. They are two people who understand the structure of the world and what people will probably do and how to keep them from doing the stupidest things possible. <laughs> it's something that I remember reading about in... T.H. White's Sword in the Stone and later The Once and Future King as seen through the prism of H's for Hawk, which is a great book. It's, I think it's by Helen McDonough, which fantastic, wonderful book. And she, in that book, is rereading those from an academic point of view and sees much of T.H. White's life in it, which is this idea where if you consider yourself to be bad or know yourself to be bad, you will then fight that much harder to uphold what is good because you know you can't let yourself go in that way. And there is something of that in both Granny Weatherwax and in Vines yeah. where there is this thing where with the reins off, either of them would not just be a villain but would be an incredibly capable and successful villain. But they know that that would be wrong and that they can't let the reins off them in that way. And as such, they become an exceptionally driven and I'm not even going to say hero because Terry Pratchett has a huge disdain for heroes. They become a force for good in a way that is not nice or easy, but gets shit done. They are the people that are turned to. Yeah. And they're the ones that step up and say, I'll have to do it when no one else will. And that's something that comes through so much, especially in the Witches series. I mean, later they even give it a name. We are the ones that stand at the edge. Mm -hmm. There's the darkness behind you and there's the light in front of you. And it's your job to make sure that things not go right. But that things happen and that, you know, witches get the dirty jobs. You know, you're, you're there when babies are born and you're there when people die. And you're there to make sure the necessary things happen in both aspects. Yeah, that's definitely a big thing about witches that is very unique to the way Terry Pratchett did them than most other stories. Witches, and he plays with this a lot in his books, witches fly on broomsticks. Yes, they wear a hat. Yes, they can do magic. Yes but they don't do it if they don't have to. Witches are much more based off of the concept of the wise woman of the villages. The one who knows you have to keep your privy holes like farther away from the water source, otherwise that's how you get diseases. They're the ones that know how to birth babies, the ones who stay up with the dead overnight so they don't have to go off to the afterlife alone. They're the ones that cut old men's toenails because no one else is going to do it. They're the ones who... That's such an important thing in later <laughs> books. Oh, the toenails are so great. It is. They're the ones that make the rounds to the houses and make sure that everything's fine. They settle disputes. They are the they are the soul and center of how life functions everywhere pretty much outside Ankh-Morpork. And it doesn't make them liked. In fact, it makes them most of the time feared and avoided, but they're good with that. <laughs> The idea that of Granny Weatherwax keeping the peace in the village, because if you start some shit, she'll turn up. And you don't want that. Nobody wants that. And, like, witches are so aware of narratives and what narratives people form around them and what stories are and what stories people tell about witches that they often use that to their advantage. Like, that's the whole thing about headology is that Granny leans into what people think to guide them in the right direction. Exactly, because of the three witches, Magrat is the youngest, and she is constantly described as a wet hen with frizzy hair who believes in lots of really soppy ideas. 
the books take great pains to kind of disabuse her of that notion. But there's a specific point where it's describing that Magrat is a better doctor because she will, you know, rather than having a spell where you give someone a special apple that will cure their wound, she will work out that she knows that it is a golden delicious apple that has been harvested on the 28th day of the month when the moon is in this particular phase and the light has hit it halfway but not all the way and we'll give it to them and it will work. Granny will give them any old thing and tell them that it works. And what's the most frustrating thing is that it will most of the time. <laughs> and that's why Granny is a better witch than Magrat, but also explains why Magrat is a better doctor than Granny. Yeah, that's the interesting thing is that Granny is seen as the most powerful witch and the most basically, as, as the most quintessential witch on the disc. But Pratchett never goes out of his way to say that none of the other witches and all of their different eccentricities, that they are lesser. In fact, he does it with a particular character, Petulia, in the Tiffany Aching books, where oh, Petulia- I love her so much. She's this chubby little awkward girl, but she's good with pigs. Says um all the time. Seven times a sentence, at least. Oh yeah, she is- she mumbles constantly. I, um, think, um, that you- She's very good with pigs, though. Petulia is excellent with pigs. Petulia does the pig trick, which impresses all of the other witches and unofficially wins her the witch trials. Petulia is renowned for her abilities with pigs. In fact, she's probably the first one of Tiffany's friends that actually gets married. It's simply that Petulia is a different sort of witch. Because, hey, this is a rural community. Pigs are really important. Yeah, and Petulia is a particular sort of witch, but it does not mean that she is a lesser one. Simply that she is a specialist in something else, and that's not seen as being worse. And I like that a lot. There's a particular moment, Magrat gets a moment like this at the end of Witches Abroad, and also about the two-thirds point of Lords and Ladies, where it's pointed out that she has, yeah, these soppy ideas, and wears a million... Eldritch Bangles, which, hey, I grew up in a relatively small city in the Club Fredericton, and there was always a store that sells those, and mm -hmm. all the walls were painted black, and there were tarot cards and fancy rings that bent in the middle, so they would cover up almost your whole finger and had a little claw on the end. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of that, but Terry Pratchett is quick to disabuse you of any notion that Magrat is weak because of that. She is different. But again, the core of her is solid steel. And actually, I'd like to ask you this because I want to ask you about Terry Pratchett and how he writes women. You know, the thing about Terry Pratchett is I've always been really impressed with how he writes his female characters. I think it's because Terry always approached female characters as people first. In particular, one thing that always interests me about Terry Pratchett is that he so rarely describes physical appearances. He can give you the absolute sketch of a person just by talking about their mannerisms and how they speak and maybe a particular way that they think. He never really talks about what people look like, and if he does, he uses some very evocative metaphors, but never something like beautiful blonde hair and blue eyes. The most he ever does with that is maybe Tiffany herself, who is brown hair and brown eyes, because she considers that to be such an important part of herself. I think that there are maybe certain aspects of, say marital relationships between spouses where women are involved that I think he has a bit more of a stereotypical handle on than I would prefer, but I still think that all of his female characters are such strong people because he never really worried about making them the strong female character. He worried about making them characters that are female. While that's something that you can debate as to whether or not that erases an experience that is one that more tailored to the circumstances of one's birth, what they were assigned at birth, and who they are, I think that that approach, because he took it unilaterally among all his characters, regardless of what their gender is or their sex, I think that's something that comes out universally as a positive. Plus, I mean, he raised an amazing daughter. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I never know how to say it. Is it Rhiannon? Rihanna, I think. Or is it? Oh, there you go. Rihanna Pratchett. Yeah. Rules. Also a quality follow on Twitter if you don't. Yeah. Already do so. She's a video game writer. She wrote the relaunched Tomb Raider game, which definitely has some really stellar writing, among other titles. And apparently she's also working on the screenplay for a We Free Men film. Oh, that would make me so happy. Yeah. I just realized something. Yeah. We are 35-ish minutes into <laughs> a recording, and we have not talked about Nanny Og yet. Oh, man. That's the thing, right? Because it's always Granny and Nanny. And Nanny is perfectly content to not stay in the shadows, but not be the center of attention. Even though she loves being in the center of attention. <laughs> yeah. 
See, of the three witches, of course, the maiden and the mother and the other one, Granny fits into the other one, and Magrat is the maiden, at least for a while, until she becomes the mother. And Nanny's the mother in that the Og family are a sprawling and belligerent clan. <laughs> and I think it says something about Nanny Og at the fact that that's her name, and every child is an Og. They aren't whatever the hell her husband's name was. Because you marry in, you're an Og, damn it. It's maybe one of the most matriarchal families that you will find in a absolutely wonderful way. Absolute despot monarch mm -hmm. kind of way. Her daughters-in-law live in fear. She never remembers any of their names on purpose, but she always talks about <laughs> our Jason. Yes, and our, our Jason. Our son, our boys, our daughters. And there is a hierarchy of trinkets and souvenirs and pictures and paintings and such. And you can tell who's in the good graces depending on how close they are to her good chair. <laughs> Nanny is the mother-in-law you would be terrified to have, but would secretly want because you want her to like you. And also, Nanny would be the best grandma. The best. Oh my god. And again, we're describing, we're talking a lot around her. Nanny Og is described as the quintessential little old lady. Mm-hmm. In that she is round and she is short and she has a face like an apple that's been left in the sun. She is nice at first glance. And she is jolly and tends to get drunk and sing rude songs about how, in some situations, a hedgehog can't really be bothered about some things. <laughs> and is very much a comic relief character, but in the way of all Terry Pratchett comic relief characters, is never just that. Never, ever. No, the interesting thing about Nanny Og is that she is... Nanny is a mother, is a matron. She is the absolute shape of a certain form of femininity. She is... Oh, she gets around. She is... Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, we forgot about that. Uh, Nanny Og thirsty as hell. Yeah, no, she's had a lot of kids. <laughs> she also is not a celibate widow. Nope. To this point where they describe her going to bed... And she always looks under the bed in case a man is hiding under there. Because you never know your luck. <laughs> Nanny's just so interesting. Granny is a lone tree. Nanny is a... Nanny is a huge forest. She is someone who is absolute steel at her core, but never feels the need to be that in the way that Granny probably feels that that's the only way that she can be. That's the thing. If... Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna really lean into this into this metaphor. So if you'll if you'll indulge me for a moment, mm -hmm. Granny is steel. Nanny's water. Nanny moves around. Yeah. But Nanny will also flatten you if you step out of line. If Nanny wants something to be done, she will erode away all opposition to that thing. It may take mm -hmm. some time. Oh, but she'll get it done. Yeah. I think my favorite Nanny Og moments are the times where because it's it said she is naturally more powerful magically than Granny Wetterwax. Granny takes what little talent she has and just makes it work harder than hell. Nanny's content to not use that, and my favorite sequence is in Masquerade, which is where Nanny and Granny are both transplanted to an opera house in Nekmopork to find an apprentice witch who'd run away to be a singer. It's a Phantom of the Opera book. It's totally the Phantom of the Opera book. It's good. It's real good. And she solves the problem of the issue not by being a witch, but by being Nanny Og just as hard as she can. <laughs> she ingratiates herself into the army of people that make something like an opera house work. And she talks to the other Nanny Og-shaped ladies. And within a day, everyone knows who she is and just accepts her in a place. Because, oh, there's always Nanny Og-shaped ladies running about in the place, in the kitchen, in the sewing room. Oh, asking about so-and-so. Oh, how's your gout? Has it come up better? Have you tried that ointment I've given you? And just fits into a place like it's in a hole that was made in her shape. Like a cartoon like where she's run through a wall. And she gets to the answer before Granny Weatherwax can just by being herself. She is the small town mother that everyone seems to know. That you can't imagine not being there. And she definitely seems to know everything. Witches are hopeless gossips and Nanny is the biggest gossip of them all. She just doesn't tell everyone what she knows. She knows what's worth knowing. Mm-hmm. Again, it's one of those things where what we're describing could very easily be a caricature. And in some ways, Nanny Elk is a caricature. But she knows it, and she's cool with that. It's just not all of what she is. Mm -hmm. Nanny is a very comforting presence. Completely. Again, don't cross her. 
like that granny that lives in town that everybody seems to know, you don't want to get on her bad side. And even just from a physical standpoint, she has the forearm that has raised four strapping sons. (laughs) She is the church lady. She is the church lady. There is a moment towards the end of Witches Abroad. She has to get dolled up in a ball. And Casananda, the dwarf Casanova, damsels rescued, princesses romance, stepladders repaired. Casananda attempts to charm Naniog because he finds her riveting and amazing because, of course, Naniog is. She says, no, no, I'm old enough to be your mother. And he's like, come on, my mother's 400 and she has a better beard than you. <laughs> La, sir. And she hits him so hard that his ears ring. You do know how to turn a girl's head. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Naniog rules. Oh, Naniog is so good. I want to be Naniog when I get that old. I would like to think that I would have the core of Granny Weatherwax, but I think at the end of the day, I'd rather be Naniog. <laughs> totally. We've talked a lot about the, sort of the core witches books. To me, that is Weird Sisters, Witches Abroad, which I think is we're making them sound dire. Witches Abroad is an incredibly funny book. Oh, it's, yeah. It's so funny because what it's about, it's about going to stop a fairy godmother And along the way, they traveled through pastiche Spain, pastiche France, pastiche Transylvania, pastiche the Wizard of Oz, to finally get to pastiche New Orleans, which has pastiche Disneyland built on top of it. Mm -hmm. Described by Terry Pratchett as New Orleans is a place where you go and fun happens, whereas Disneyland is a place where you go and you are made to have fun. Like, people really talk about how much they like the fairy godmother from Shrek 2. It better in Witches Abroad. It better. It better and it darker and it scarier. And funnier. Yeah, and also funnier. That's also when you get to see Megrat reveal for the possibly the first time in the series what is in the core of her because she is described throughout as having kind of a mouse's temperament. She is often frightened and overwhelmed and trod underfoot. And then she is confronted by two women who were actually snakes who have been turned into people because, hey, fairy godmothers once can do that. And then they re- it's revealed that occasionally when you chase a small furry thing into a corner, uh, it's a mongoose. Yeah. That's such a good moment. Oh, shit. <laughs> you may notice that we're not talking a whole lot about, we keep talking about a trio, about a coven, but we're not really talking about the third member that often. That's because this tends to sort of rotate. Magrat is the main maiden of this for a long time. Then she becomes a queen and, well... Queens have to do other things in country sometimes. So that's when they pick up another third member who is Agnes Knit. Yeah. And Agnes is very interesting because she's really, she doesn't stay a witch particularly long, even though she really would like to be. Yeah. Agnes is introduced as someone who, one of her main traits is that she is sensible. She is eminently sensible. And how much of a pain in the ass that is when you are the sensible one, surrounded by people who are less than sensible. And the thing is that Agnes wouldn't like to be the sensible one. Agnes represses all the unsensibility. Yeah, and there's a line taking something terrible where it says, oh, they say in every fat woman is a thin woman trying to get out. Agnes has given her a name and has conversations with her. Her name is Perdita X Dream. Like, the thing about Agnes is that she doesn't quite, there's a lot about, there's a lot that is shapist and body shaming and describing Agnes. So it's unfortunate because she is a very strong character. Same with the early Sybil Ramkin, I found. Yeah. There is a bit of that, although I've kind of internalized it and in a kind of a hopeful way in that a lot of what's said is implied to be what society is putting on this person yeah. rather than any inherent flaw in this person. But again, that's my read on it. I agree. And I would prefer to read it that way. I think there's still a lot in Agnes that is just, oh, she's fat. But the thing is that Agnes still has the same thing that I was talking about earlier that many Terry Pratchett characters do is that she is a very strong character, a very strong sketch. It's just that sometimes when he didn't quite know what to do with a particular way to write her, he kind of went for a fat joke. And it hasn't particularly aged well, but... I still think it's worth reading. Just, if you haven't read those books, you might want to brace yourself a little if that's not quite your thing. Yeah. And what I like most, I think, about Agnes is you see the contrast between romantic ideals in the form of Perdita and bedrock sensibility in the form of Agnes. And this is a constant conversation that's happening within the character. Mm -hmm. Like, she's in a Phantom of the Opera story. She, for example, is invited down to the Phantom's basement, and Perdita is going on and on about how 
it will be this cavernous space and there will be red velvet curtains and there will be dribbly candles in like pools of water that float and it will be terribly romantic and mysterious and agnes is like it's dark there's gonna be rats and spiders (laughs) it's gonna suck it's gonna smell of mold i don't want to be here because like at the end of the day perdita is interesting and everything that agnes would like to be but agnes is the better person Oh, yeah, because Agnes turns up in two what want to be gothic stories, but are then refused to allowed to be gothic stories because we can't be having with that. And that's Masquerade and Carpe Jugulum. Carpe Jugulum, which is where vampires take over Lanker. Modern vampires who don't follow the rules, because it's important that monsters have rules and witches have rules. But, you know, sometimes those rules are more guidelines. I have a theory about Agnes, and I think it's that the reason that Agnes doesn't stay a witch long is because in both Masquerade and Carpe Jugulum, which is the vampire book, Agnes's arc is sort of the same in both, but is so much stronger landed in the second book that there's really no way for her to then continue to be the person she was at the beginning of those books going forward. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I think the role of the maiden in a coven that has other people like Nanny Weatherwax and Granny Og is to be someone that sort of needs to be led, someone that is a little bit soppy around the edges. And I think Agnes becomes such a strong character that that being seen as almost subservient to these three witches, but of course there aren't any there aren't any hierarchies in witches. Absolutely not. No one's leading. No, no, no. No, But the one who isn't the leader is Granny Weatherwax. Exactly. (laughs) And the thing is that Agnes ta- Agnes's talents really kind of lie elsewhere. She is an excellent witch, but as Terry Pratchett goes on with his books, especially with the Tiffany Aching books, he becomes less attached to the idea that a witch must be and look like a certain thing, that witches can really fulfill different roles lots of different places. And, well, maybe Agnes's is pursuing her absolute talent, which is singing. Agnes can harmonize with herself. Yeah, and she can go as low as she can go, but she finds if she goes any lower than that, people start getting queasy looks on their faces and holding their stomachs, and (laughs) dogs start to run away. And I think that's the interesting thing about Agnes, is that she has an absolute talent for witchcraft, but maybe that looks different for her than it does for the other witches in where the witch books primarily take place, which is Lanker. Or Lanker? I don't actually know. I've always said it as Lanker. Yeah. Because that rhymes with canker, and that makes it funny. (laughs) Lanker is this sort of mountainous little village area that's kind of the Ozarks, but it's also kind of Wales, but also kind of, actually, though, Lalmados is, is sort of Wales, but it's it's any little town in the mountains that doesn't see outsiders much. It's maybe a little bit of Appalachia, too. Yeah, yeah. So this idea of being a witch in Lanker isn't what Agnes wants or needs. She eventually goes back and continues being an opera singer, and then will turn up in the Tiffany Aiken books every now and again and kind of get a nod from the others, and they realize she's doing a different thing, and that's fine. So I'm looking at the time, and I think we've probably got enough time for one more thing, but let's do the thing we've been teasing to do this entire thing. Let's talk about Tiffany Aching. Oh my god, okay. So the thing about Tiffany Aching is that Terry Pratchett wrote a couple of books, like, the Discworld books are fairly all ages, but he wrote a couple of books in particular that were aimed more towards the young adult middle grade reader range that take place in Discworld and use the advantages of that setting, but don't necessarily require any kind of pre-existing knowledge for the rest of the setting. In fact, I think it takes until maybe about the fourth Tiffany Aching book to even mention the fact that it takes place on the disc, which is a large disc on the back of four giant elephants who are on the back of a giant turtle, the great Atuin. Yeah, which is great. And, and those two books are The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents and The We Free Men. Terry oh. Pratchett was apparently working on a script for a sequel to The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents, but it's sort of a Pied Piper book. But it's Tiffany Aching as the character that he latched onto, probably because he is personally was just so attached to Granny Weatherwax and the philosophy of the witches. Yeah, and Tiffany Aching is kind of, well, first off, she's great. She's fucking great. She is the best. I read my younger sister, the first Tiffany Aiken book, The We Free Men, when she was six years old. Aww. And, and she is now 23 and has told me how much she has internalized that. Aww. And I have never been so proud. That's so good. Isn't it good? Tiffany Aiken is a young girl who grows up on a farm in a place called The Chalk, which is kind of like, I'm not, I'm not sure which part of England, but kind of a place with rolling hills, uh, you know, lots of sheep. It's limestone country, too. There you go. She is, again, the sensible one in her family. She's the one who reads a lot, who loves big words, and is essentially what witches are made from in a way that, you know, pots are made from clay. Yes, that's such a good way to put it. 
But here's the thing. There are no witches in the chalk. It isn't Lanker where there's a whole support structure. And so Tiffany becomes a witch because the queen of the fairies steals her little brother. She doesn't particularly like her little brother much, but this kind of shit doesn't happen. It can't happen. And so she takes a frying pan and her big sensible boots and she goes to fucking get him back. Like the first thing that we see Tiffany doing, which is an amazing introduction to any character, is Tiffany and her little sticky brother Wentworth are playing by the river and this strange river monster called Jenny Greenteeth comes out and attacks her. Tiffany grabs her brother and then thoughtfully goes back home, finds a book of fairies and fey creatures that she has, reads it, hmm, thinks to herself, gets out a dinner plate, measures it, measures a different dinner plate, and says, well, it's seven and a half inches across. Why didn't they just say so? And it never quite says <laughs> Jenny Greenteeth's eyes were as big as dinner plates. But Tiffany's like, well, so... That's that kind of kid. So what Tiffany does is this eight-year-old girl takes out a large frying pan, takes her brother back to the river, puts her brother out as bait, waits for Jenny Greenteeth to come out of the water again, and then smacks her with an iron frying pan. Killing the shit out of her. <laughs> because again, cold iron. Fey folk don't like that shit. And also, a heavy frying pan. Yeah. Nobody likes that shit. <laughs> I mean, look at Rapunzel. Frying pans. Who yeah. knew, right? <laughs> and this is our introduction to Tiffany Aching. She barely says anything. We hear her in her monologue a bit talking about how much she likes the word susurrus. But that's the length and breadth of it. That's who she is at her core. And that's the person that she carries on being for the rest of the five books that she's in, each one taking place two years apart from each other. And so we get to see. And the thing is, if it sounds like we're describing Granny Weatherwax, there's a reason for that. <laughs> And Tiffany goes on to become initially an apprentice to a series of different witches and learns different things from them and each time learning what needs to be done and taking on more responsibility and realizing both that she is the only one who can do some things, but also that she doesn't have to do everything. And that she also makes a lot of mistakes. Oh, yes. She makes a lot of big mistakes and many of the books are about her fixing those mistakes and figuring out how to do it, when to ask for help and when not to. It's a really good series, and we haven't even gotten to the part where there is an entire tribe of six-inch-tall, woad-blue, Billy Connolly-type <laughs> Scottish Pixies, who are the wee free men, the Nack Nack Fiegel, and she befriends them in the first book, and they become her personal army, and they're great, <laughs> and stupid, and really, really stupid. And they are her best, but, and, and one of their leaders, the big man of the clan, Rob Anybody, which, by the way, took me until mm, last couple of months <laughs> to figure out that was a joke. Yeah. Rob Anybody is one of her best friends. The thing is, they start off, as she grows, they gain layers, both, I think, through the fact that, you know, they're more developed and also the fact that of her influence. Like, you know, Rob learns how to read and treats it the same way he treats any challenge, which is by running at it screaming with a sword. <laughs> the, her tactic initially for getting their attention is scolding them and they start wailing and tearing at their hair because, oh, God, she she's speaking to us sternly. In a voice of disappointment. Oh, here comes the tapping of the feet and the folding oh, of the arms. Oh, God. Oh, whaley, whaley, whaley. Uh, I would love to actually, like, try to attach, attack this brogue, but this is an audio medium, and I would butcher it horrifically. <laughs> it's phonetic in a way that Chris Claremont wishes he could do. It's the kind of thing that, like, makes you think about how completely indecipherable most characters were in your average Redwall book. And you're like, oh, this is supposed to be fun to read. Her, I girtly do like me some deeper never pudding her fucking balls. <laughs> there are some bits of fegal dialogue that can only be read aloud. Mm -hmm. it, it's all gone ugly. <laughs> um, but there's little, there's a moment in The Shepherd's Crown, which I messaged to you because it made me laugh so hard. Which is Tiffany asking, could you do me a favor? And he goes, oh, hi. Would you like your earwig wife dropped in a pond or something? Alas, no, I'm not that kind of person. Aye, but we is. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, just traditional. We're folklore. We can get away with that kind of thing. <laughs> because pixies love to drink and to fight and then to drink and then fight and then steal shit. And they are fast, and they, their primary method of stealing a sheep is for four of them to each pick them up by one of their hooves and then run away. And so it's common to see a sheep traveling confusedly at speed and backwards across the downs. <laughs> 
like a fegal left to his own devices will end up kicking himself in the head out of boredom. <laughs> Sometimes they just fight each other for good measure. Yeah, it's great. It's like it's all funny and great. But again, we like I think we've said that a few times. So Discworld is all funny and great, but there is this fantastic core of it. And especially when you get to the later books where the funny is there, but it's in service to the main story. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, it's a book I'll be talking about eventually with Ted Brandt, which is Nightwatch, which I think is sort of, if you imagine it as, like, a waveform that gets narrow at the middle and becomes a fixed point, I think Nightwatch is that book for the Discworld series. Oh, man. But also, if you're saying that for the, if you take the witches as a whole, the We Free Men is that point. The point where the wave kind of crystallizes to the single point, and that's as hard as a diamond, and then spreads out from there. Yeah, Tiffany Aching is such an interesting reinterpretation of the entire series of witch stories. Like, in the first book, Tiffany does everything by herself, because it's so much a question of, what is a witch when she is stripped of all of the other signifiers that she is a witch? What is she then, and what does she do? It answers that question to the point where really Granny and Nanny don't even show up until the last couple of pages is a cameo. They have greater roles in the subsequent books, but it is all about being a witch because no one else will be. And one of the central questions of the first couple of books is whether or not Tiffany's grandmother, Granny Aching, was also a witch. Because this is a country in which they don't like witches. Witches are hanged. Witches are witch-trialed, essentially. Except there is Granny Aching, wandering back and forth in the middle of a storm with her lantern looking for the lost lambs and making sure they get home. Damn it, Annie, I'm tearing up now. Me too! Granny Aching's the best. Ah! <laughs> Me too, I am too. We're uh, in this together. <laughs> yeah, and there are the sheep trials, which is where everyone shows off their sheepdog, and there's a fancy cup, but no one gives a shit about the cup, because the only real prize in that is that Granny Aching will watch and she will smoke her foul tobacco in her pipe and she will give you a little nod and say that'll do. That's it. That's your winner. Tiffany is a character that... So the reason I recently reread all the Tiffany Aching books is because I joined a book club and they were looking for suggestions and I was like, I, I haven't read The Wee Free Men in a couple of months and I would like all of you people to like not hate a book I picked. So, well, a couple of months, a couple of years to be fair. <laughs> Yeah. It was fascinating going around the table listening to these people because one of them suggested that Tiffany Aching was a character that she had always wanted but didn't know existed. Oh. And I think that's so strong about Tiffany. Tiffany is an incredibly important character to me. She is a girl that I would have needed to have as a kid, someone I would have wanted to know. I am so happy that like that you were saying you read this to your sister to know that she does exist for the people who need her when they need her and isn't that just a thing <laughs> and i think that's a beautiful point for us to end it on so yes listeners if you think you should read discworld you should and if any of this sounds vaguely interesting to you i would recommend starting with weird sisters and then going to witches abroad lords and ladies masquerade carpe jugulum and then we free men and on or you can just start with the we free men because it's really really good. Yeah, you definitely don't need to know about the other witch characters. You really wouldn't even have to have this episode to give you a basic idea of these characters beforehand. They exist well enough on their own, but if you want a bit more context as to who they are, after reading The Wee Free Men and some of the other Tiffany Aching books, you might want to go back or explore any of the other books in the Discworld series. There are lots of really good ones. If you like The Witches, you might really like the Death books as well. I'd say they are yeah. very much companion pieces. But I know that, Lucas, you're going to have a whole bunch of folks on after this to talk about some of those other Discworld series as well. Yeah, I'm eventually going to have Al Kennedy talk about the Death series. I'm going to have Ted Brandt talk about The Watch. And I'm going to have Joe Graham come and talk about The Wizards. And I think it's kind of great that in my little call out, I got three people from the UK who are going to be telling me what this incredibly British author has meant to them in their lives. Because I'm Canadian and you're American mm -hmm. and it's hit us this hard. I would love to see how it landed with them. Yeah, because Discworld is something that is very understandable and very universal, but I think it is written primarily for the British experience. I definitely did have to read it a couple of times to figure out pull the other one with it's Scott Bell's on is like a it's like a <laughs> phrase. I, I had never encountered that before except for like five seconds in Monty Python the Holy Grail. 
<laughs> there is a lot of that. But yeah, then you come away with a bit of an education. Yeah. Also, I can't wait to talk about the last continent having spent the last 15 years living in Australia. Oh, yeah. You are you are uniquely situated to talk about Forex. <laughs> ah, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Annie, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? Sure. We touched about this a bit on the beginning, but in terms of social media handles, you can find me on Twitter at Anniezard. That's A-N-N-I-E-Z-A-R-D, like Charizard, but with an Annie in front, which is probably how I always imagine myself after playing Pokemon. If you want to follow the podcast and stuff I do, we are at crookedrussiancam.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at gemjamcast. You'll find links to the Gem Jam archives, Gem Jammer, I Will Fight You, as well as our video series Date Me Damn It, which is currently on hiatus where we play Otome games. <laughs> Seduce me, the Otome. Yeah. It's very, it, it's hard to, it's hard to figure out what to follow up with that one, frankly. I have played the sequel it is wild. I just want to know when you're going to play that one where you're a pigeon. Oh, I don't know if we could do Huddleful Boyfriend. It's so, <laughs> it's so good. Anyway, thank you so much, Annie. Uh, I'm wiping my eyes a little bit after that last bit, but I'm so glad you were able to come on and talk about this thing, as opposed to just us yelling at each other through Twitter DM. I mean, we'll still do that, but thank you so much for having me. I am always happy to be here, and I apologize for monopolizing time slots since this is my third one on this show. I think you, uh, uh, no, actually, I was going to say you were the first third time guest, but then the quiz episodes means uh, Sims beat you to it. Yeah, well, he gets around. <laughs> And on that note, thank you, Annie. We'll end this. <laughs> Thank you very much to Annie Creighton for her time. For this week's signature cocktail, I knew I had to make something that would make Nanny Hog proud, or at least slightly tipsy. And it had to contain something made of apples. Well, mostly apples. And so this is a version of the Vieux Carré, the original of which was invented in 1938 in the Monteleon Hotel in New Orleans. And so I present La Vielle Hache. In a mixing glass, combine one ounce of rye whiskey, one ounce of Calvados, three quarters of an ounce of sweet vermouth, a dash of Angostura bitters, and a dash of Peychaud's bitters. Add ice and stir to combine. Add a dash of green chartreuse to an empty rocks glass and roll it around until the inside is entirely coated. Pour out any excess into your mouth. We don't want to be wasteful. Pour the liquor from your mixing glass through a strainer into your prepared rocks glass. Add a large chunk of ice and a cherry for garnish. On with the motley. Terry will appreciate it. And I hear it's good for stomach ailments, too. Enjoy. With the last I know that it's that time Upside down on the power lines Making a family on their minds Raining on the plains again can you hear it drumming on that old tin sheet? No better sound to make you fall asleep. To dream of ton crops and big fat sheep raining on the plains again. The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every second Wednesday with a bonus episode in between. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want you could make it rain. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also leave a review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? 
If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used going all the way back to episode one, including this song. It's Raining on the Plains by Sarah Storer and John Williamson, a couple of true blue Aussie legends. I thought it fit the Tiffany aching section of this podcast very well. In fact, putting together the music for this particular podcast was an absolute joy. I recommend you check it out. Special mention to that June Carter Cash intro, which she recorded when she was 88 years old. And isn't it amazing? Now, initially, the next episode of The Unbroken Circle was going to be a conversation with Ted Brandt, one half of Brandt and Stein, the artistic duo behind many, many fine comics. And we were going to be talking about maybe my favorite Discworld series, which is The Watch. However, fate played a hand, and the call recorder that I had chosen to use for Ted's episode uh, sadly only recorded me. So that episode has been sent off into the ether as a sacrifice to Anoia, goddess of things who get stuck in drawers. Rattle your drawers, people. So instead, I'll leave you with this. A man is not dead while his name is still spoken. His name was Terry Pratchett. As is Tesla. Hello. It's funny because Kimiko is a relatively new cat owner. Basically, since we've moved in together, has been the only time in her life she's had cats around. Oh, yeah. And watching the indignant responses to stuff that is normal to any cat owner <laughs> is just like street theater. It's amazing. <laughs> like, she feeds them in the morning and I feed them at night. And so she'll go into the bathroom in the morning to be like put on her makeup or to like go to the bathroom. And both cats will like shoulder barge each other to get through the door. <laughs> and she's like, just, just leave me alone. What do you want? I'm like, You've trained them. You want food. You've given them food in the morning at the same time. And now they think every time you're going in there, it's food. She's like, but that's really annoying. I'm like, yeah, that's how it works. Oh, yeah. When we we used to keep the uh, the cat food and everything in the office with our computers. And then when we moved, we started storing it elsewhere because we don't have a teeny tiny apartment anymore. But like it took Tesla a good like six months to stop running to the office where the computers were and all that furniture was every time he was hungry. Just like this is where I go. This is the stuff that surrounds where the food is. We had that in a slightly less fun way. When we first had Bolin, he had a separate litter box because he was in a different room from Olive while he was acclimatizing. Sure. And the first time we moved it, he walked to where it was, no. looked around, looked at me, no. made eye contact, and pooped Bolin, exactly no. where it was. <laughs> like, this is where I go. And it's like, no, it's not. Bolin, no. I'll show you. And after a while in that apartment, I just had to keep that door closed because in times where, for example, Olive was monopolizing the bathroom where the litter box was, he would just be like, all right, I'm going back. It's like, I know this is old reliable. It's like, it's really not. It's neither of those things. <laughs> you can't bury anything there, Bo. <laughs> oh, man. The other thing was her learning very quickly upon staying over at my place that you can't move your foot when there's a cat on the bed. Yes, thing under sheet. And just getting really angry when <laughs> Olive would like claw this her foot. And she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, you moved your foot. So? I'm allowed to move my foot, you stupid cat. No, there's there's a thing under the sheet. They have to catch it now. I might murder it. Yeah. It could be a danger to the family. It is thing under sheet. <laughs> have you seen there's that thread of what your cat thinks of you? No. It's an ongoing thing, but it's it's like, yeah, the big one is uh, that, oh. You are just a, just a really terrible hunter, and so your cat takes pity on you, and it brings you things, but it wants you to learn, so it doesn't bring you dead things. It brings you things that are only mostly dead, mm -hmm. because if if you don't kill it yourself, you're never going to learn, and if you don't learn, you're not going to survive, poor human. Oh, yeah. Here's a partially dead spider, you stupid idiot. <laughs> yeah, here's a mouse. It's still twitching, because, you come on, do the thing. Yeah. And then you get mad, and it's like, what what is wrong with you? <laughs> I remember reading somewhere that dogs recognize that, like, humans are not other dogs. They're a different species, but cats don't. Cats just treat you as big, weird-looking, hairless cats. <laughs> so I don't really have a format for this yet. I mean, 
I'm kind of playing this one by ear too. I don't really have a, I don't really have a thing prepared in terms of an outline. I'm just, I'm just here to talk. Well, it's good because that's kind of what you're here for. So, <laughs> oh, I'm sure it'll work out fine. Yeah. I mean, it's not like either of us have any ability to, like, I mean, we are at all times just like actively, like repressing the urge to talk about Discworld. So, it's true. I think that would make for an easy thing. <laughs> I think we'll manage. Oh, speaking of which, um, this, I may cut this out. This is completely unrelated to anything, but right. we watched Super 8 last night, and I actually quite like that movie a lot. Oh, I really like Super 8. It feels a lot like like a early 90s Spielberg-y kind of feel. Yeah, because he produced it, and the whole thing was like a love letter to like E.T. and yeah. other movies like that. And there was one thing where I was reading about it after, basically went straight to the TV Tropes page as soon as the movie was finished, because I'm me, <laughs> and was reading about the fact that when they shot the train, it was exactly the same as the Cecil B. DeMille train crash and in attempting to recreate that train crash with models was how young Steven Spielberg got an interest in film. Oh my god. And so when it was then produced this movie that was based on his movies, J.J. Abrams decided that he is going to make the exact same train crash and that train crash is fucking scary Aww. and beautifully shot. That little fucking nerd. Just a cyclical head, like I'm going to do this, which is a secret reference to this thing, which you loved, which got you into film, and what you did on film caught me into film, so I'm going to do that for you. How good is that? Oh, Super 8 is so good. And also was responsible for reminding you that, hey, Elf Edding can really act. Yeah. Oh, shit, yeah. Also, this is the dumbest thing, and to the point where we saw it, and Kimiko saw the cast list and went, oh, God, you're going to be insufferable, aren't you? It's a really dumb joke from a podcast from like six years ago, but whenever I see the name Elle Fanning, I always got to say it like she's a Mexican bandito who's turned up in a Clint Eastwood movie. It is the rise of Elle Fanning. <laughs> <laughs> and then you got to play that tuxedo mask. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I once saw a joke on Comics Curmudgeon, the blog that Josh Forlinger runs that just does newspaper comics, and he talked about how he finds it much more entertaining to pronounce Spider-Man like Spiderman, like it's a like it's a last name. <laughs> like John Spiderman. Yeah. You gotta go see the Spidermans. <laughs> and like now I can't not say Spiderman in the same way that I can't stay robot without first stopping myself from saying robot. robot. <laughs> <laughs> you can call it the, the Griffin McElroy effect. How any plurality of a certain name, it's always the first name that gets the plural. Like your Tom's Baudet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so dumb. Or, or the, the pronunciation of the second to last syllable of a thing. Like somebody. Once told oh, me. <laughs> it is one of those good chimichangas. <laughs> we definitely, we have definitely in our household taken a saying casual. <laughs> a filthy casual. Wow, we are, it is 14.57 into the recording, and we are in the ditch, Annie Creighton. <laughs> we should probably talk about witches. We should. Huh. We should get out of the ditch world and get into the disc world. You're fired. Can you can you oh. hear the shit-eating grin on my face? I can hear it. Excellent. I can hear it. It's extremely endearing. Excellent. Um, <laughs>